Hello everyone, I am J.A. Graham, and this is the History of Religion podcast. We are still in the series of the history of Christianity, and this is episode 34. Last time, we looked at how Islam helped to form Christendom into two major sections, one in the East and one in the West. Today, I want to look at how these two sects have diverged from one another. This will primarily be by looking at the Eastern Orthodox Church. Now, the Eastern Christians would have called themselves Orthodox and Catholic, Orthodox being that they believed in the true Christian doctrines, and Catholic in that they represented Christians in all times and all places. The Roman Catholic Church would have done the exact same thing. In the 7th and 8th centuries, both would have recognized Christians in the other sect as true Christians, but a bit odd in what they believed and how they practiced. It is only by modern terms in English that we now refer to the Western Church as Catholic and the Eastern Church as Orthodox. Both would claim the terms Catholic and Orthodox as their own back then and still do today. So what has led to the ever-increasing split between the West and East now that they are the only two main players left in Christendom? It is easiest to look at how Eastern Orthodox Christianity developed, as most people do not know much about the Eastern Orthodox Church since Roman Catholicism is the dominant form of Christianity in the world today. The Western Church built much of its theology off of St. Augustine's works, which were in Latin. Augustine becomes the foundation for much of the Western theologians, especially since the Islamic empires have arrived and Greek and Hebrew are lost for the most part. The West relies on the Vulgate translation of the Bible into Latin, and Augustine as the main commentator on the Bible. The East still had Greek, since they spoke Greek, but their version of Augustine became the man named Origen, who we have spoken about already. And some of you may remember that the last ecumenical council, which was the Second Council of Constantinople in 553, condemned Origen as a heretic. Yet, this did not stop the Eastern Church from using his theology. Origen remained the most influential theologian after his condemnation in 553 all the way up until we reach the 8th century. Origen's main influence on the Eastern Church was that of synergism, that God works with humans to save them, and humans have free will to cooperate with God in their salvation. Something that is important to mention here as well is that partly because the Eastern Orthodox Church never changed its language, it continued to use the traditional forms of worship. The West had been forced to translate things into Latin and to create new liturgy. This process will continue, and as we saw with Gregory the Great, the power structure in the West dictated both liturgy and theology for the most part. This does not happen in the Eastern Church. There never is a change in language, and there still exist other patriarchs, even though they are not very powerful. So the liturgy becomes the main focus of the Eastern Church, while the power structure becomes the main unifying aspect of the Western Church. The Eastern Church does not see liturgy as simply an expression of theology, but as an essential aspect of theology. This means that even until today, Greek Orthodox liturgy is much more similar to what the early church practiced in comparison to what the Western forms of Christianity practice in modern times. An implication of this is that Eastern Orthodox Church does not try to impose orthodoxy as much as the Western Roman Church does. There are less systematic theologies, which are systematic books written to explain the theology in an overarching, coherent manner. A great example of how the Eastern sect saw its own development is who it held in high regard. Origen was condemned as a heretic, yet was still used, and then John Chrysostom became a hero of the church. John Chrysostom really did not contribute much theologically to the tradition, but his preaching and example as a tradition became renowned 
and that is what is remembered and admired. So the East became less concerned with writing dogmatic theology to beat their followers over the head with, and more with the tradition that was encapsulated in the liturgy of the church, which had a rich tradition. Now, that is not to say that the East did not care about theology, though. They certainly did. In 580, Maximus the Confessor was born in Constantinople. He was born to a nice family, but eventually became a monk. He found himself in Carthage in 632, just a few decades before the city would fall to the Muslim invasions. While there, he was introduced to a new movement called monotheolatism. It believed that Jesus only had one will. Maximus did not appreciate this and believed in what was called dialetheism, or that Jesus had two wills. None of this is news for us, though. Maximus had issues, though, because Byzantian emperors were making concessions to monotheolatism. Having no friends in the eastern half, he went to Rome to persuade the Pope there to not give in to monotheolatism, as he argued that it would lead to Apollinarianism and Eutychism. True, since only one will would be human, and as Gregory of Nazianzus said, what God does not assume cannot be saved. In 649, the Pope and Maximus held a synod, where they condemned monotheolatism and monoenergism, which was the idea that Jesus had only one energy. While he was in Rome, the Byzantines invaded and tried to reclaim parts of the old empire. The Pope, who at the time was Martin, and Maximus were both captured and sent to Constantinople. Pope Martin was accused of inciting treason and speaking out against the emperor, who had declared that no one could speak about the monothelite and diphthalite issue because it caused division in the empire. Martin died in exile. In 665, Maximus was put on trial in Constantinople and was condemned because he said that the emperor had no spiritual authority over the church and theology. So in 661, he was tortured to death. He then became a saint for defending diatheolatism. His work in theology became extremely influential in the Eastern Church. His stance against monotheolatism was validated in the Sixth Ecumenical Council, which we will now turn to. In 678, Constantinople was besieged by the Muslims, and that gave Byzantium a near-death experience. The empire lost its holding in Syria and North Africa to the Muslims. Constantinople was in need of help, so the emperor tried to reach out to the pope to get on better terms now that they really needed it. Pope Agatho agreed that they should be on better terms and agreed to having a conference. The emperor suggested that councils be held throughout Christendom to provide a comprehensive understanding of Christianity. There was a synod in Milan and Hatfield, we know of at least, which is modern-day Italy and England. Rome held a council, and once all the material had been gathered, they left out to meet in the Eastern Church of Constantinople in 680. Constantinople gathered leaders from its areas, and the Bishop of Antioch was currently in Constantinople since the Muslims had conquered Antioch by this time. The council was nothing other than pathetic in the light of other councils. Only 37 bishops showed up, as in the past hundreds had. The Pope sent delegates, but did not see it worth attending himself. The patriarchates of Jerusalem and Alexandria had to be represented by appointees because of the invasions, and only two patriarchs were present from Constantinople and Antioch. Emperor presided over the council, and it was declared an ecumenical council, the sixth one. Yet the last session did have over a hundred bishops that showed up, so it was a little bit better in the end. The council condemned monotheolatism and validated Maximus the Confessor. Also, it condemned monoenergism, and everyone who held these two condemned 
beliefs in the past, who turned out to be one pope, Pope Honorius I, and four patriarchs of Constantinople. The pope in Rome was Leo II in the end of the council in 681, and he agreed with everything, then wrote a pretty nasty declaration of how heretical Pope Honorius I was. The only interesting thing that occurred at this council was that the monotheolites were desperate, so in their desperation one of them claimed to be able to raise the dead, which would have proved that they were more holy and right in their theology. A dead body was brought in, and the fellow whispered in the dead body's ear for quite a while it seems, but eventually they just all gave up on that. The council was not contested, as there was nobody to contest it. All of the sects that would be opposed to it were under Muslim control, and their representatives had been chosen by Constantinople itself. Rome had a stronghold on the west and was dictating Christianity all the way into modern-day England. The monothelites had been found in Carthage by Maximus, the confessor. Carthage was no longer a Christian city, and those in it were in no position to argue at the council. All of this forced the East to be in more friendly terms with the West, who they needed politically to stand up against the new Islamic empires. However, the division remained. The division would reemerge in the years after the council in a new form. This brings us to a man named John of Damascus, the final major theologian of the Eastern Church that we will cover today. He was born in 675 in Damascus and was also called the Damascene. By this time, the Muslims had gained control of Damascus, so he provides a great example of how Christians functioned under Muslim rule. His father was an elite under Byzantine rule and possibly helped the city surrender peacefully to the Muslims. His father saw a distinction between the books of the Muslims and the books of the Greeks, which shows that very early on there was a split in ideology between Christendom and the Islamic empires. John was educated in both, but primarily in the Greek form of education, which was a classic Hellenic system since his father was from the old Byzantine Empire. The story goes that his tutor was a monk who had been captured by the Muslims from Sicily. The, this foreshadows the Muslim invasions of Sicily in the 9th century. This monk brought ideas from Western Christendom as well. This provided the perfect combination for John, as he was taught in Islamic books, Greek books, and Latin. Around 706, he went to Jerusalem and became a monk after Christians were forced out of politics under the strict caliph. John watched as the Umayyad Empire marched towards Constantinople until they were stopped at the walls in 718. John became one of the first critics of Islam from Christianity. His work concerning heresy considers Islam a heresy of the Ishmaelites, so he still considered Islam a form of Christianity, and it was a heresy at this point. This is probably because Islam was not yet fully formed, and no one was really able to fully express it clearly to anyone else. John pointed out that some of Muhammad's ideas about Christianity were just wrong, and he taught that Muhammad had been taught by an Aryan monk. John apparently read the Quran, or the proto-version of it, at this time, and it said that Mary was considered the sister of Moses, and Jesus was not crucified but brought to heaven. He calls many of the stories in the Quran simply crazy, which is really saying something from a guy who probably took the story of Jonah and the well, literally. He said that Islam permitted polygamy and Muhammad committed adultery. Muslims criticized John as being an idol worshiper. The reason for this was John really liked icons. Icons are pictures of Christ and saints that are the focus of meditation and prayer and worship. In Eastern Orthodoxy, they are called the windows into heaven. Muslims were particularly hostile to pagan idol worship, and it is evidenced in their art as they do not draw pictures of animals and humans but mainly rely on geometric shapes. Even today, Muslims kill those who draw pictures of Muhammad. John responded to Muslims by saying that the Kaaba, the stone in Mecca, 
which probably was not even in Mecca at this time, was the head of the old statue of the god named Aphrodite. So it was a bit hypocritical to be against idols when they prayed towards one five times a day. But John had even more folks who were not happy with his paintings of Jesus. Icons were used by this time to become a major business, especially in the East. In the Byzantine Empire, it would not be unreasonable to say that every house and building had icons in it somewhere. This was big business for the monks who made them, and those in power were starting to get concerned at the size of the new market. So in 717, the Emperor Leo II ordered the destruction of icons in the Byzantine Empire. This began a back and forth in the empire. When those who were opposed to icons called iconoclasts were in charge, they stripped them from the churches and burned them, and when those who were for icons called iconophiles gained power, they put icons up on the wall. This went on for a few decades in the 8th century. John was an iconophile and gave the strongest argument for the use of icons. He developed a difference between what is called worship and veneration. Veneration is a type of respect given to an icon that is dedicated to God and is a pathway for spiritual energies. True worship is only given to God. So one can show reverence, or proskesis, to icons, but not worship, or latria. This was a bit of a genius move and provided a way for the matter to be taken up in the final ecumenical council and accepted by two dominant strands of Christianity, the seventh ecumenical council of the second council of Nicaea in 787. Geez, that was a mouthful. John wrote other works like his exposition, which was a compilation of Eastern Orthodox theology and is a standard work for those theologians. So John brings us up to the seventh council, and that is where we will pick up next time. So I hope to see you then here on the History of Religion podcast.